0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 480. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or check out other shows in this wonderful network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. This week's interview is with Thomas Telving. Thomas who is a copywriter and digital content specialist, is the author of a new book, Killing Sophia, Empathy, Consciousness and Reason in the Age of Intelligent Robots. It's available in Danish and English. In this conversation with Thomas, we discuss the dilemmas and ethical quandaries around ever more intelligent machines, the easy and hard problems of consciousness, the legal and moral rights of robots, cultural variations in our relationships with the robots, and a whole lot more. You'll find all the show notes on mintodal.com. Please do consider to drop in your rating and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Thomas Talving. Well, I reached out to you when I saw the title of your new upcoming book, Killing Sophia, Consciousness, Empathy and Reason in the Age of Intelligent Robots. And you can imagine that that just titillated me no end. You have a, a master's in philosophy and political science from the University of Southern Denmark. You're based up in Copenhagen, as I understand. And uh, congratulations on your book, Thomas. In your own words, how would you like to describe yourself?
1: Well, uh, well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Danish philosopher uh, and I'm an author and I'm a speaker and not least uh, a consultant within PR and public affairs. Uh, and uh, well, I've, I've authored, authored uh, several articles about the ethics of uh, artificial intelligence and roboethics uh, during the past five years or so. And then I started uh, doing talks uh, about it and generally just uh, taking an interest in it. I always uh, saw it like well, my my, uh, my education is sort of uh, two two sided. I have the philosophical part, and then I have the political science part. And I always thought about it as if I used the political science part uh, by far the most. But then, but then, sort of well, not out of the blue, but uh, but I started noticing uh, videos uh, on uh, mainly on YouTube about artificial intelligence and about uh, human like uh, robots and then i started reading about it and obviously there's been like huge amounts of research on these topics and then i saw that that uh, whereas my philosophical education previously i think i tended to think about it like a fun and very interesting thing to do a way to stretch your Your knowledge, What can we know for sure? And when we had it at the university, our discussions were kind of like a an academic game. but but I think a lot of us couldn't really see where where is this going. But then when artificial intelligence and human-like robots came, uh, I could see, okay, the, these questions, they, they're important now. Now they're about reality. And now it's really important that, that we are, if not able to answer anything, then at least able to discuss it at a certain level. And, and philosophy and ethics can help us do that. So um, so in the later years, I've, I've been really happy about my philosophy degree because I've actually been able to use it for something constructive uh, and share it with other people, not least uh, first in articles and then talks and now in, in the book um, that I just uh, wrote calling Killing Sophia dramatically, but with a more academic uh, subtitle Consciousness, Empathy and Reason in the Age of Intelligent Robots.
0: But it is funny how when we study things at university or for your master's, there's always that question, what am I doing this for? So, I mean, ultimately it feels listening to you that what you're doing, what we are doing as we explore artificial intelligence is we are somehow defining, redefining what is humanity, what is knowledge, what is intelligence, uh, what is emotion, what is pain? It feels like it, it when you have to when you're forced to encode, you have to ask yourself first what it is at a very deep level.
1: Yeah that's that's right. I am um, well i've I've tried to stay out of the conversation about what is intelligence uh, and it, it seems like well, People have been talking about artificial intelligence for for many years, since, well, what, since Turing, since the 50s, for many years. Um, And every time a new thing is done and something say, wow, now this is really, really good. Now this is artificial intelligence. Then someone comes and say, ah, no, but but maybe we should also be able to do this and this. So so because what is intelligence really some say, okay when, when we make a computer that's, that's able to beat a chess master, then we have the real deal. but then then comes up the game of go and other games and just all kinds of things. So so I I don't want to get into a discussion about what is intelligence because it's it's not kind of not my field. What I want to get into discussion about is more uh, like, what 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 do we use this technology for, and how does this technology affect us as individuals, and how does it affect uh, well humanity on a on a larger scale? And uh, and when when speaking about that, obviously, what what you say, I'm I, I totally agree. Yeah. Well,
0: this is what I want. Why I wanted you on my podcast. So I want to start with um, something you mentioned, and it, and it kind of titillated me. Uh, you talk a lot about anthropomorphism. The idea of projecting into objects and animals, uh, our own humanity somehow, and and you talked about uh, how some your aunt or someone like that talks to her cat, and and how uh, well we do we talk to our animals our pets as if they were a human, and and I was wondering if there's any research that says that that is on the rise, the need to talk to pets because. I feel that in society, we've lost our ability to converse and nobody wants to listen anymore. Is that not a sign of society that we're talking to our pets?
1: (laughs) Well, actually, I I think it's a sign of um, how human beings are and how human beings go around the world because we've been reading Uh, anthropomorphic features that's a really hard concept but you know human-like features into various things for thousands of years into landscapes into uh, clouds artists have doing it into paintings you know and aunts and other people perhaps myself including have been doing it into cats like uh, well with, with our reason we may know that talking to a cat it may not get every word but still we keep acting as if it does and this this uh this concept of uh anthropomorphism has uh well I, I spent quite a lot of time studying it because uh well if we if we zoom back to these five years ago when i first i think yeah was it 2017 maybe when i saw the first video uh videos of the this uh, robot sophia um well I watched it and and obviously I knew that this was a this was a machine it had probably complex algorithms and stuff but it was a machine but but she was interviewed and she answered pretty convincingly and even though with my rational intelligence I know that this is a machine I could not not help feeling that she she's she seems alive and I read something into her. And then I started thinking about, well, what if what if someone asked me to hurt this robot? I mean, I should think about it like if someone asked me to hurt their microwave and, or another toaster, and I should just be able to smash it. But would I would, would I be able to, to do that with a human-like robot, even though probably it doesn't feel anything about it? And um well, well my my own reaction was that i would probably have kind of a hard time doing that and that is because of this anthropomorphism that i i just kind of read this stuff into her which may not well i i doubt it very much that it, it is there but i still do so um so yes i i think and from what i i read about it that this is a human feature anthropomorphism it's just how we go around the world and and uh, interact with things that we we come to do it and the more things look like us the more we do it
0: well i mean it obviously leads to this idea of empathy because with little gestures and facial expression we are projecting into this object the machine feelings that we are actually mirroring somehow feeling into this object And uh, and you mentioned the the great work by Sherry Turkle. And she said, um, you you nurture what you love, but you also may love what you nurture. And I feel like it's part, so there's the empathy story. So you watching Sophia for the first time and and leaning into the feelings of this priest we know is is a machine, attributing it some kind of pain that we are kind of feeling if some harm were to be done to it, And then there's the other side of it, which is when we feel like it belongs to us, like we we're nurturing it, then we start falling in love with it. I and I wrote about that in my book. um, I don't know if you saw, but about my own relationship with an empathic bot. And I absolutely felt that, even though I can't consider myself a total empath, I know that that's what I started to do. So we've got a a lot of crazy situations going on where we might get mistaken for uh, and and I know in your book you talk a lot about this issue of the legal rights uh, and moral obligations that we have so as far as uh, you're concerned how far can we go and and what's to stop us from giving over all our rights to robots?
1: well that's a very big question. I cannot answer it completely. But but the first thing I want to say is that uh, often when you mention this concept of robot rights, if you mention it just to, to anybody or if you mention it to lawyers or if you mention it to tech people, the majority, I think, will say, get out of here, that it doesn't make sense. It's just a, it's just a machine. My point is that due to this... Uh, ability or well, just this tendency we have to anthropomorphize and have empathy towards the machines, we may just come around to do it anyway, even if we, with our reason and our rationality, we don't find it to be a good thing to do. We may just do it anyway because we can't help it. Um, So um, it starts before rights. It starts with, uh, with morality. And it's a big discussion within this field of uh, ro- robo ethics and a field called human robot interaction that's been studied a lot. That um, h- how do we go about this rights question? And it can be like it can be viewed from different angles. My angle is that um, if a robot actually does feel pain, if it is able to have conscious experience, well then it it may not be such a bad idea because then then it wouldn't be fair to treat robots uh badly obviously because you you put pain into the world but if they don't well then i don't then i don't think that rights is the concept we should use and then then but then still even if it if a robot doesn't feel anything, which which at present at least I I don't think at all, uh, it can still uh, raise uh, serious moral questions. Like I have in my book an example, a bit, uh, well uh, a bit a violent example. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry, but but I'll try and uh, rephrase it anyway. Uh, like if you have a human-like robot, say it's 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 the size of a of a teenager, and it's uh, helping a man uh, shop. And then the two of them are walking outside and, uh, and the handle of the grocery bag just slips and the grocery fall out on, uh, on the curb. And then the man just start kicking this robot, you know, and, and punishing. Okay, the robot. robot. Then you can say, OK, but, but is, is this bad for the robot? OK, well, it may not be because the robot is likely to not, well, not experience anything. But what if I come walking? with my teenage daughter, and I see it and my teenage daughter see it, then even if the robot does not feel a thing, it, this would still be a moral situation. Then we would still say, is this really okay? Can this man do this? Is, should this be legal? But my own take on this would not be to grant rights to the machine, but it would be to say, or at least ask, should it really be legal to treat this machine like, like he may wish? Out in the public because it it uh, gives us some very hard moral situations and it gives a lot of uncomfort to well to a lot of people or at least it it may it may do we should remember saying that that this is this is in an age where 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 robots look well almost like a human and, and may not even be distinguishable. <laughs> Is distinguishable from a distance, um, so yes, robot rights is that it's a, it's a huge question, and I I try to describe it from a, a variety of angles in my book because there's a lot of things to think about. Also, in order not to do something stupid, I mean, in order not to grant rights to something that actually does not feel a thing, which I would I would think was a mistake sometimes you see uh, the rights concept being used to protect things like also should we should we grant rights to this river in order to protect it from pollution and the uh, the intention is obviously good but is rights the way of doing it since the river i mean it doesn't i suppose it doesn't feel punished but still we should take care of it so so uh, so it's a broad concept and we should really think uh, think uh, deep and think twice before we just use rights in this context. And this is why it's also very important to to discuss it uh, at length.
0: Yeah, you talk about or I mean, you you obviously flesh out the idea of this uh, the morality and and what is good. And we have had quite a a large jump in, in the idea of what is good and bad, or at least some relative change as to what we describe as good or bad behavior. And so, if you see somebody kicking a robot, the the educational value for your teenager daughter, uh, it seems like that would be very hard not to suggest that such visible mistreatment of a human-like object is is a bad thing. Yeah, and I, and I
1: I agree about that, and uh, and I'm not the only the only one. It's been discussed within philosophy, also many years before robots were even uh, thought about Immanuel Kant, the German uh, uh, enlightenment philosopher, felt that uh, well at that moment he didn't think that that animals for instance should have right rights but he still thought that uh, it, it would like it would it would hurt our own, uh, ability to make uh, sound moral judgments, to get used to just treating animals poorly. And actually, he also thought that about certain kinds of like objects, so just destructive behavior in general, he, he saw as Damaging our our very important ability to make good moral judgments. So in that in that way, if we if we come into a society where you can treat robots the way you wish, this may have a lot of other implications than just harming the robots. Like because it would it is likely to also do damage to
0: our own moral uh, judgments. One of the things that I have no idea about, but I am very curious about, is the idea or the identification of pain as the sort of indicator of uh, its consciousness. And in, in a recent podcast, I was listening to how they're using virtual reality to help people get over grieving and uh, as well as pain. And, it, you know, we could have sliced our foot very badly in a, in a serious accident or in a danger place. We run from that place and we feel no pain. And then about a mile further away, we look down, see our foot oh, and then the pain hits us. So our ability to put off pain as human beings is kind of peculiar because it's not it's not always on, per se. In terms of when something horrible has happened to you, so I, it flesh out for us this idea of of how pain is an indicator of our consciousness.
1: Yes, well, I I write a lot about uh, empathy in in my book, and um, and because and then I use pain as an example a lot because pain um, is well, it's a very immediate uh, example of having. A kind of conscious experience. When you feel pain, that's that's just a very good example of a conscious experience. When I look at you, and uh, well, now you run the hundred meters and you start looking at your foot yourself, and you and you feel the pain and you also express the pain. Well, then I can I can read your face and I can hear your voice and I can also maybe see your foot. Uh, and then out of this my empathy will uh, will awaken and i will i will i will mirror your pain in my own brain and uh, it will not hurt me like it hurts it hurts you but i, I get a pretty good impression that now Minter is, is is in pain um but the problem with it stop me if i'm going out in a different no it's all good hey listen i love rider halls it's good let's go <laughs> but, let's go uh, uh, girl. all right uh but but the thing about it is that that my impression of your pain and the the fact that i do feel empathy towards you is not a proof that you have this pain it's just a, it's it's my uh, mirror neurons Uh, well working in the brain and that's a good feature because that's like anthropomorphism that's a way of interacting in the world but it's not a proof that anything is actually going on inside you so these expressions that you start asking about well they are signs of uh, something going on but they are not a proof of something going on and this is what gives rise to another philosophical problem that i treat in my book called uh, the problem of other minds this is one of these problems we discussed uh, at university, like a sort of academic game, because I mean, who would really doubt that their neighbor or the guy sitting next to them in the Metro does not have a mind himself. No one would, but um, but the problem takes on a different, um, a different thing when, when it comes to robots, because then, then we actually do not know if it does has, have a brain, even if we, don't think so 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 uh so but but back to the empathy um so so that is a sign of this but it's not it's not a proof and this is what gives us so many problems when it comes to to robots did i even a- answer your question here <laughs> i'm sorry if i i took a different direction
0: no it's all good but i think we need a little rewind yeah um so in the end of the day i think what this all points to is is a central- argument in your book which is the idea of the problem of hard consciousness yes and because pain is maybe the indicator the the journey into it the the easiest expression of it and even there as in my comment or my question really was I think there's doubt sometimes about pain in one individual because you know we grieve for example but we we may put off the grieving. We'll do things to avoid the grieving. So we will avoid the pain by doing. These are the human instincts that, that allow us to, de, you know, let's say, defend ourselves from the pain of losing somebody or in the case of, of a sliced foot, the ability to get away from the danger. But the thing you talk about most, Thomas, is, I mean, I think is the, the, the thread that unites everything and decides for us what we should be doing when it comes to robots is the decision or the ability to un, to solve the hard problem of consciousness. Yes,
1: and that is that is really a hard a hard problem. Uh, can you can you start from, by
0: help? Can you start by explaining what is hard con, the hard problem and the soft problem with easy problem? Yeah,
1: it's a it's a it's first coined by a, an Australian philosopher now living in the, in the United States called David Chalmers, and and because when when you explain this to people and say now i take the robot as an example and say okay but but this robot it um you 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 you, 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 you tramp it on its foot and it screams and it does everything that that you would uh, well i think it would do in, in pain um and and the, then the question is no no okay sorry i'm gonna rephrase Take, take a human being, um, because if, if you are in pain, you react in a certain way. And I would even be able, or I would not, but a, a neuroscientist would be able to explain what goes on in your brain, what goes on in your nervous system when you uh, when you experience or when you apparently experience this brain. And she can explain everything about that. But one thing that, that and that's what Chalmers calls the easy problem of consciousness. like. You can you can watch these things, and you can you can be certain that this this person, this individual, is able to react to outer stimuli uh, in a reasonable way, and that that looks like consciousness. Uh, but that is not the hard problem of consciousness. The hard problem of consciousness is uh, the pain itself, or the feeling you have inside. If you see the color red, then it's not what happens between the red rose and the, and the light waves and your eyes and your nervous system, that is not what it's about. It is the impression you have of red because your impression of red, I will not be able to determine if if when you see a red rose, your experience is actually what I have as a green experience because that experience is private. This sounds strange to many people because we think we know so much about brains. We know so much about psychology and psychiatry. Of course we know this too, but the fact is that we don't, a lot of research is being carried out in the field. A lot of very good scientists are working to find out, well, what, what, what is consciousness? What, what does it take to make this arise? But they don't, well, they have good theories, but but we don't have any sound facts to say this is it. Um, and and like I said earlier, it's not a problem really for human beings because we just well we we mirror each other and we think okay well well mince probably has consciousness too and everybody else I meet. Um,
0: Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out.
1: But what about a cat then? We cannot ask it. Many years ago, the the French philosopher, Rene Descartes, said that, well, animals actually don't have, well, he didn't say uh, consciousness, but he used the concept of souls, which is pretty fairly similar to what we we use uh, the concept uh, of consciousness for today. And he said, they are actually just mechanic machines. So when you hurt a cat, it doesn't feel the pain like you would feel it. It only reacts as if it does, which also maybe was convenient for Descartes since he could... uh, conduct um, vivisection on animals, which which was a a normal uh, scientific procedure at the time, because you could do that since it doesn't actually feel the pain. It just screams, but don't worry, it's nothing. Um, but, But the hard problem of consciousness is what made that possible and what actually still makes it possible to ask a reasonable question about it today, saying that we cannot know, we think so, and I think luckily... We uh, sort of spread the con- concept out to many animals now. That we think this also feel pain. You know, in in the old days, we, we said, "But but it's a fish. Fish fish don't feel pain." Well, well, my take on that would be: well, it probably does feel. Is it probably is able to feel pain, but it's not able to express it in a way that we can read. So it's it's our own deficiencies that that make us makes us think so. Our own deficiencies. Um, yeah <laughs> well our our cognitive uh, divisions We 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 don't have access we don't have access to the to what could be the conscious mind of, of a fish or a cat or a robot we can investigate it and we can try and find find uh, things that uh, that are parallel from the nervous system of a human being, from the nervous system of a monkey, from the nervous system of a dog, cat, mouse, and on and on down the the ladder, the further you get from from the human uh, genome. And we can investigate it and find common things about how the nervous system works. And then we could infer that, okay, but this is probably conscious as well. Whereas would we do that with a tree or with a plant? We would just naturally think, oh, obviously, this is not conscious. Um and I and I don't and I don't don't think it is. Some some do. Also but the tree, tree huggers.
0: Th- the tree huggers amongst the tree stars.
1: huggers. <laughs> but but uh but the, all that, I mean, as long as we treat the animals uh good and fair, which I think we should, is not a big uh problem in our everyday lives. But when it comes to robots, it actually may become. A problem because where would we where would we place them on this ladder of being consciousness at the mouse level or at the tree level or at the dog level or at the monkey level well if we have a complete simulation of you for instance in 20 years well it would be hard for us instinctively not to react as if it is conscious and it is by now at least impossible for us to prove is it the one way or the other? We we don't know. And this is also this is interesting, interesting uh, regarding the rights question, because well, I would say no, obviously we should not use rights for these machines. Um, but then again, what if it actually does possess consciousness and we keep them as slaves? That would be a disaster on on, on the level of, of Descartes um cutting hats slicing cats open to see what went on inside them. Is, is, is this completely weird for you or does it make sense? Can it does, it
0: does. No, I know I, I'm, I'm following you the whole way. And I think what's interesting about your book, Killing Sophia, Thomas, is that you're, you're putting on the table questions that we do need to look at. And as I said at the outstart, what I believe and why I wrote artificial empathy, the interesting part about what we're doing and you are doing with Killing Sophia is is helping us to explore ourselves not just the robots but by needing to look at these questions and answer some of them which involves our our moral compass and how it's evolving and evolved over the years and and let's just say with a tree should we be thinking about the consciousness of a tree well, I think that's a little bit, that's a, a yard too far for me. Um, and, and, and somehow when we as a society are trying to do so much good everywhere, we kind of forget to do good to ourselves. And, and we, if we need a robot or a cat or a dog to talk to because we feel so alone and not listened to, um, I think we ought to need to explore internally, I mean, amongst ourselves, what's gone wrong with our society such that we are going to start to want to be empathic on robots. We're going to want to have a robotic companion living at home to talk to because no one else listens to me.
2: Yeah,
0: I agree. And, um,
1: and the the problem is that, uh, yeah, that's what you're saying, actually, that the market for this is huge. And it's all, it's already here there's already um, a large and successful robotic companies supplying um, robots for the elder care. And that's not only for physical tasks, tasks, that's also for, for conversational robots and they are being marketed as a true and loyal companion in the senior days of your lives, which is sad really because uh, like, like you, um, like you say, well, well, the elderly someday it'll be us hopefully um <laughs> doesn't anybody want to talk to them and there's an ex- existential point to it as well because when you at the end of the day what you when you look at at what makes people happy that is well i'm sorry to say but it's, it's not things and stuff and cars it's friends and companions, and and exactly. husbands, and wives, and, and boyfriends and girlfriends. It's it's other people. So actually, what makes people most happy is caring for other people and helping out other people. So we are, when, when this thing about the elderly sector, when we when we uh, apply uh, robots, conversational robots with it. I mean, of course, if you have lonely elderly people, that that's a tragedy in itself. But we are also outsourcing. What potentially could make us most happy, but we choose to work instead, and then we make the robots do the caring for the elderly people. But existentially, that's that that's it's. I mean, it's it's just it's basically stupid because we we don't we don't help anybody. We just make things worse for us and probably also for the elderly. At least to the point that. Um, that they don't start worrying too much. Does this machine actually have a consciousness? Does, does this machine love me too? Or do I know that it's just an algorithm? It's basically a very, very advanced statistical machine that I'm loving. Well, like you, you mentioned Sherry Turkle earlier on. Uh, she, she wrote a book about this called Alone Together, um, because her, one of her points is that, well, it, it is easier. With with a with a robot, it's easier because you, I mean, you don't have to argue with it or anything. So so and and she uh, experienced a lot of people who would actually choose that if they could, and she said, okay, but here you are then alone together because because it's not really a companionship if the other the other part doesn't feel anything if the other part isn't able to experience anything. This is again why this this problem, the hard problem of consciousness, is it's such a such a puzzle and and such a yeah such a problem because it it makes it hard for us to know what should be decided here what i think is that there should be a broader like public um, dialogue a conversation about it make make more people involved in it what i sometimes mean uh, meet is that oh thomas this kind of a little bit weird philosopher talking about these things again but, um but I also experienced that after talking to people for just uh, 15 minutes or if people have read my book, um, which many have in Denmark by now it's not issued uh, as we speak as we record this podcast in your country yet but but then they start to see the point saying yes this this is something we should we should discuss and this is actually this is, very important for for the whole direction of human civilization that sounds maybe uh over the edge but but it's it's not really it, it will affect us hugely
0: so i of course that's really why this is such a fun and engaging conversation as far as i'm concerned thomas I, I, in your book you you do talk about the differences the cultural variations with regard to this question. So it may be, as you say, a question for humanity around the world, but we have very different ideas of how to treat dogs uh, in, in our world. Um, so to, to name Saudi Arabia and China, the way that they uh, think of dogs is a very different way than we might in Denmark or in England or um, you know uh, in the United States. And so as to you You very clearly elaborate or, or you you cite the research that talks about the variations in the animal kingdom down, down to the rats as opposed to a dog and and so on. but how do we how do we figure out how to do that when we have even different ideas of how to treat a dog?
1: Well, one of the points in my book is that we should uh, now there's a, there's a widespread uh, moral um, relativism meaning that people have this idea that moral well that's something that's relative to the culture you live in or to the group you're part of or maybe to even to an individual take something as trivial as just eating a steak for 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 a hardcore vegan that would be considered cold-blooded murder whereas for for a I was almost saying a normal person, but but for any kind of meat eater, it would not even be a moral question. So that that's a, that's an example of moral being relative to just a one person. It can also be relative to a group. I mentioned in my book that that in Denmark it's it's normal in uh, many places to to uh, to to go to the beach and for for women to to not wear a bra, for instance. So in Denmark, that's not it's not really a moral thing the whereas, same as in south of
0: france and yeah south
1: of yeah. Spain for sure yeah that's so that's that's it seems to be a cultural thing because in uh the, in the, in the united states at least some places in the united states it's it's considered to be well very immoral behavior right. i'm Ob- in saudi arabia <laughs> of course yeah then then it, it would be punishable uh like yeah in a hard way um but examples like these they uh, they make us think that okay but then moral is just a relative thing but i think that we should not let this uh, this view take us too far because some things i do not believe are, are relative and this is where I'm, I'm really sorry about this pain thing but it's just such a good example if if you apply serious pain to someone um like serious pain if you have a my, my, my one of my my teachers, the professor at philosophy, he, he had an example saying, okay, if you have a bucket of boiling water poured down your back, that kind of pain would would it, would it be able to make that relative to the culture you live in? And he's think, okay, well, hardly. Um, that that is a universal pain. And if you look at um, you have the example about animal treatment in various country countries. okay, fair enough. But if you look at uh, how people are treated in, um, in dictatorships, they're treated very poorly. But is that a sign that in this country, in North Korea, that in North Korea, it's not a moral value not to apply pain to others? Well, I don't think so. Because when you see people escape from anything, they try to escape from pain. And that's that's no matter where in the world people are from. So we do have a lot of common ground when it comes to moral. And moral, the basics of moral, what is that about? Well, it's about freedom and it's about how you treat others. But it's very much about, well, we simply cannot accept inflicting pain on others. That's immoral behavior, and I think that is immoral, no matter where you live. Um, and uh, but but people tend to forget that I think because because we have so many examples of uh, of morality being being relative. But but I don't think it's relative. I think morality is universal a, a, at many levels. And okay, you seem like you have a question. Uh,
0: yeah, well, yeah. just like just like the notions of intelligence. We can consider spatial, mathematic, emotional intelligence. There's different versions of intelligence. And and in the case of pain, uh, today's world, we have different versions and ideas of pain. So uh, post-traumatic disorder, PTSD, um, uh, grieving is pain. And uh, you can have abuse is pain, removal of freedom is pain. So these are ideas that are, are deeply, at this point in my opinion, cultural and, and what we think of as freedom uh, and rights of an individual, even human rights, which somehow is related to this pain question. Removing of pe- freedom, removing of, of people, <laughs> and then pouring down hot water on the back. But uh, there, there's this radiation of, of what is pain. And, and we have very different moral ideas as to what constitutes pain on a human being
1: Yeah, that, that that that's a very good point um and we should probably not be overly optimistic about how far we can uh, can take this uh, universal claim about pain because because it it is also uh, relative in some instances but i but this is why I use such uh, such uh, well far out or, or like heavy examples because I use examples that I think everybody must be able to agree on. This that's the one with the, the boiling water I, I mentioned before. What about freedom then? Well. Then then it gets maybe gets political, which is not my my specialty, but well it is, but,
0: but wait, if I remind you, this is what you studied, so that's why it's all for
1: Okay, it is my specialty. I'm sorry. Uh, i <laughs> <that. laughs> rewind.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. Can you... Okay, so that is my no. Um but freedom, I think freedom is seen as a value in uh in I, I don't know, in in is it not seen as a value in many, in most countries? Well, I Uh, think it's
0: part of the human condition to want to fight for freedom. The question is, what are you fighting from? Because sometimes you might be fighting from the oppression of a dictator, uh, an abusive husband, or or, um, just the the freedom to say whatever I want to say. And Mm -hmm. so we have different versions, and, you know, the liberty or freedom is involved in so many constitutions, and differently interpreted. Yes. And it'll and it'll very quickly get complicated because
1: then you could have like if you have a communist saying that uh, uh, well communist regimes are not known for us westerners to to promote freedom but a communist could say well but what if you live at the very bottom of a capitalistic free society is that person free well it may be free in principle but in practice it's not able to, this person is not able to do anything so. It, so we say, no, it's not free. You need to have uh, a certain amount of, um, of financial uh, equity to be able to do anything. So we should redistribute to, to make people free. So, uh, okay, I take some of your money and I give it to a poor person. That may take a little bit of your freedom, but it gives more freedom to the person I give it to than I take from you. So that So a communist could argue that I'm trying to promote freedom as well and then it becomes a matter of degree uh, how how much do you want to do it you can also have the same discussion about the freedom of, of speech uh, because then you and then you then then it starts to come into a hierarchy if you take in china for instance very limited freedom of speech but china could say okay we have had clan wars for thousands of years and we have had poverty and violence and a lot of bad things now we are trying to build a rich society here in china china because we think that a minimum of of financial um, well the power should, should be distributed to everyone or in order to have any kind of freedom so now you want to have the freedom of speech and then suddenly we have an opposition and all kinds of dangerous things that may uh, that may destroy the project we have of making china a rich country i, I must stress that i do not agree about this argument i'm just i'm just of course this is, this is
0: philosophy uh, here
1: yes <laughs> exactly i'm just saying that that you could argue that that, I mean, the restriction of the freedom of speech could be an argument for saying, but then, then our financial stability may may vanish and you'll be poor and then you won't be free anyway. So we just help you prioritize wisely. What I'm saying is that you can, you can uh, well, you can make arguments for, for supporting one or the other. And I think the main point of it is that most people would tend to, to to uh, to defend freedom as a value, you won't find anybody say pain is good, freedom is good. I mean, who would freedom is bad? Who who would get elected on those notes? I don't think anybody would. They would they would talk about it and and say, in order to get this, we have to do as I say.
0: Uh, you know, certainly okay, that... the world of democracy has its own failings and issues to deal with. Thomas, in the time that's left us, I wanted to talk about one more thing, which is really your view into what's happening in AI and in the nearer term. Um, and so specifically I was thinking of uh, empathic AI, artificial intelligence, a topic I studied back in 2018 and 19 for my book. And I was wondering what, where are we with empathy being encoded into bots? Has, has there been any uh, interesting projects that have recently come up or, or that you see on the horizon
1: one thing that uh, that I look very much on right now uh, is digital humans. You know, um, an animated person working as a chatbot on the internet. Anybody can access those, and um, so that's that's like the digital screen version of a robot. And uh, it has not been researched as thoroughly, but but we know that that we also have empathy towards um, animated. Persons on screens, and this is not a future, um, a future technology. This is a technology that is being rolled out as we as we speak, and it's really good and it's really fun to play with, and um, yeah, many good things to say about it. But we should also notice about this technology that because we develop we anthropomorphize it like we do with the robots and we uh, feel empathy towards it like we do with the robots, maybe not at the same scale, but still we do. Um, that gives it uh, a huge power. And some of the, the builders of this technology say that, uh, well, this technology, it uh, it has a four times bigger conversion rate than a, a normal chatbot. And that makes it uh, a fantastic tool for selling, um, and that's interesting. I think if uh, w- when that comes out as salespersons on the internet, I'm sure we'll love it. But uh, but we might also get manipulated a little bit. So that's what I'm looking at right now. And uh, and people ask me a lot about it when I'm I'm doing uh, talks. Uh, so so that's something I think we should be aware of and look at with philosophical eyes. A bit of scepticism,
0: maybe. Indeed. Well, I, I certainly um, I think with, within the uh, community of people studying empathy, we obviously see how empathy can be used as a tool for bad, um, whether it's someone trying to manipulate his, in marketing or, or used um, by sociopaths. There are many ways that empathy can be used the wrong way if you're not careful. So Thomas, um, unfortunately, I think it's come to an end. I really wanted to get into a few other things, but that's life. We will leave, uh, you'll leave me frustrated, but hopefully for anyone listening, they'll get a chance to go and check out your book that's out in Danish already. And uh, at the publication of this podcast will be out in English. How can people track you down, Thomas, get you to speak to them Uh, talk to them about or or follow your writings readings (laughs) what's the best way
1: well they can uh, they can follow me on uh, linkedin that's probably the best i try twitter but i'm not that active and if you google my name i don't think anybody has the same name you should be able to find it on my website and on my linkedin profile and uh yeah i hope uh, people will will follow and, and join the discussion and it's been really really nice talking
0: to you as well I'll put all that in the show notes. Alright, thank you, Thomas. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue Podcast. If you like the show, or would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Dialogue. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes. With over 2,000 and more blog posts on Mintadal.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer A Convinced Man.
2: I'm a convinced man, building an urge. I'm a convinced man to live and die submerged. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man, challenge my fate. I'm a convinced man, competitions innate. I'm a convinced. Of a woman, Despite revenges and struggle to see, live for the challenge, so life's not incomplete. What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die. I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to. I'm a convinced man I'm ready and it I'm a convinced man In the arms of a woman